0: The book of Ephesians is a beautiful picture of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ as members together in Jesus' church. When he arrived, Jesus revealed what was once hidden from us throughout the ages through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, we're introduced to something new, a life in Christ, where we find the answer to the brokenness of this world. But what should this look like? How should we, in the power of the Holy Spirit, live this new life? Jesus's church is meant to be a source of wholeness and life amidst a world of brokenness and death. So what does this entail? What does it mean practically? In this letter to the Ephesians, Paul explains the mystery of the church and gives us practical insight into living as believers who have been raised from death to life by faith in Jesus Christ.
1: Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. It's good to see you today. Take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter one, and we'll get there in a few minutes. Uh, we've already enjoyed a great time of worship, um, but I, I know that uh, in in a room filled with people this size, and even those that are watching and joining us online, I know there are times when we come into worship and. We struggle to worship. I mean, do you ever show up on a Sunday morning and find it hard to worship? Uh, I mean, you come in here and you see other people and, and, and they're excited and maybe they're raising their hands and their eyes are shut and maybe some tears running down their face and they look like they're really into the worship and you sit there and think, what's wrong with me? Like, it's, it's just not happening for me. I mean, maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you're just kind of flat on the inside or maybe you're weighed down with... Uh, uh, sadness or hurt or stress or worry or disappointment, or you got bills stacked up and, you're, and, and you don't know exactly how you're going to be able to pay them all, or you got so much stuff going on you can't get the to-do list out of your mind, or maybe you got a medical issue and uh, the doctors haven't been able to help you with that as yet, or maybe something is just not happening for you at work or at school or in some relationship and things aren't progressing like you think they should, and you're frustrated with God, or maybe you feel trapped in a situation and and you can't see a way out and, and, and your thoughts keep turning that thing over and over and over in your mind. you can't get it out of your mind, you lay awake at night thinking about it and and, and, and you can't sleep and uh, and you get tired and the and the fatigue makes you even more emotionally spent and all of these kinds of things can affect your, your ability to worship. And when you show up with all of that going on in your head, it really doesn't matter what's going on in here. It doesn't really matter how hard you try to work worship up. It just doesn't happen for you. And if you ever found yourself in a place like that, then the passage we're going to look at this morning as we begin this study in Ephesians can help you with that. So if you're not there already, Ephesians chapter one, paper or digital, I prefer paper, but uh, digital is fine. Find your way to the book of Ephesians. Now, by the way, if you're new to fellowship, this is your first time uh, with us, uh, welcome. We are glad you're here. We're honored that you're here because there are lots of good churches in in Greenville and uh, but that you would take your time to come and check us out. We're very appreciative of that. And one of the things that we we want you to know about us is that we are a church that takes worship very seriously, and and you'll see why in a moment. But the truth is, everybody worships something. And you can tell what you worship because of what you focus on. Uh, In other words, whatever dominates your thought life, whatever dominates your passions... That's what you worship, and we believe that only God deserves that place in our lives. And As a result, you'll hear us talk from time to time about not just worship in here, but that worship really should be a way of life. Now, another thing you'll notice if you attend here on a regular basis is that most Sunday mornings we are teaching our way through whole books of the Bible, and today we're beginning a new series in a book in the New Testament, actually, it was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to some small little house churches in a city called Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. And most scholars believe that this letter to the Christians in Ephesus was circulated among many of the churches in Asia Minor that Paul helped to start. And this letter found its way into uh, those many churches, because what it has to say about our Christian faith is extremely important. One of the most important books in the New Testament. So, if uh, so, you've joined us at a good time. If this is your first time here, so let's dig in. Ephesians chapter one, beginning in verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the olden days, when people used to write letters with pen and ink, they told you right up front who the letter was from. And that's much better than having to flip through five pages and look at the end to find out who the letter is from. But right up front, we see that the letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the churches in and around Ephesus. The real question is, why did Paul write this letter? Because most letters in the New Testament are written to correct some kind of problem, either a problem of theology or doctrine, or there's a heresy going around, or they're trying to correct uh, the behavior of people who are not living in line with the gospel. You don't find that anywhere in Ephesians. So why did Paul write this letter? Well, I have no doubt that the people who first read this letter were going through the same kinds of of discouraging feelings that I talked about just a moment ago. Now the reason I believe that is because most scholars believe that Paul wrote this letter from prison, probably a prison in Rome, and uh, he wrote uh, 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 Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, all those are prison letters. And so Paul, the point is, Paul has been arrested and he is in chains, Now think about that for a moment. Put yourself back into that time. Imagine you're a relatively new uh, Christian, and almost everything you know about the Christian faith you learn from Paul when he showed up and started uh, preaching about this Jewish Messiah uh, named Jesus, who Paul claimed was not just a Jewish Messiah, but he was in fact the Messiah of all people, the Savior of the world. And Paul, uh, uh, you you never met anybody quite like Paul. I mean, this guy had like a bar of steel for a spine, a man of strong conviction who endured all kinds of trials and, and troubles in order to preach this gospel of salvation, as he calls it down in verse 13. And Paul was convincing and he was persuasive, but not just in terms of human persuasion. No, there was something powerful, even even supernatural about the way he talked about Jesus, this Jesus to whom he had dedicated his life. And imagine that after you heard him preach a couple of times, you believed the message yourself, and you signed on to this radical new Jesus movement, and your life took on a radically different meaning and purpose. Okay, but now you hear that Paul has gotten himself into some kind of trouble, and he's in prison, so what kinds of thoughts would be going through your head? How would you be processing this? I mean, I think some, some questions would be like, wait, 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 wait. What's going on? Paul is in prison? I mean, has this whole Christianity thing, has the train got off the tracks? I mean, is Christianity for real? I, I mean, why would God allow something bad like this to happen to one of his most committed, faithful servants? And if the leader of this Jesus movement we bought into is in jail, well, where does that leave us? And it's true, isn't it? When a leader goes down, it can cause a lot of anxiety among the followers. And Paul knows that. So he writes this letter and he sends it by one of his associates, a man named Tychicus. And I'm still trying to figure out why the mother would met, you know, name their child Tychicus. Uh, anyway, but anyway, and here's what Paul says in chapter six, verse 21, like right at the end of this letter. He says, Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending to him to you, with the letter, for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that you may be encouraged by him. So Paul knows that all of these people, all of his friends at Ephesus and the surrounding areas, they need some reassurance. He knows they need some encouragement. He doesn't want them to worry about what he's going through. So while chained to a Roman soldier, he writes to these new converts to let them know he's okay. In fact, he says, I'm more than okay. You see, because Paul considers himself an unbelievably blessed person. Man, look at verse three. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in him, in the beloved. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So here's Paul. He's in prison, in chains. He opens this letter of encouragement to his friends in and around Ephesus, with this incredible song of praise to God. He considers himself a blessed man in spite of his circumstances, and that is what occupies his mind as he sits in extremely difficult circumstances. And this leads him to begin this great letter with worship. Basically, he's saying, don't worry about me. It is well with my soul. Now, I don't know about you, but that just blows my mind. He's able to worship. He's able to compose this doxology, this song of praise, despite being in chains. He is not discouraged. He's totally encouraged. And he's saying, I'm writing to you. I'm writing this letter to you to let you know how I'm doing. So join me in this song of praise. And he goes on and on, nonstop. Verses 3-14 through 14 in the original language in the Greek are one long sentence. 202 Greek words, one sentence. He's so caught up in worship that he throws out the rules of grammar and just leans into, breaks into resounding praise. Now, people who study literature uh, call this uh, kind of language a pleonasm. Now that pleonasm to me sounds like I've got like this eye condition or something. It's like right down here in the corner. You see that little pleonasm right there? Now, Now pleonasm is using more words than necessary to get your point across. It's saying the same thing in different ways. And praise language, and this is a good example, is filled with this kind of thing. We've been reading the Psalms in our community Bible reading plan. You see it in the Psalms saying the same thing over and over and over again in different ways to emphasize a point. And here in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says you're chosen, you're predestined. Almost the same thing. He talks about God's will, God's purpose, same thing. He talks about being holy and blameless, almost the same thing. He talks about redemption and forgiveness, close to the same thing. He just goes on and on, one after another. Now, most scholars believe that this is an actual song, or at least it can not contain parts of a hymn of worship sung by early Christians. So, this is interesting. So, when Paul says over in chapter five, Verses 18 through 20, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God for the Father, for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he says that, he is practicing what he preaches right here at the beginning of the letter. And so Paul is so caught up with God, with who God is, and what God has done, is doing, and will do in the future, he gets so caught up with God that he piles word upon word, truth upon truth, in a ca- like, like a cascading waterfall. He just can't quit praising God. And Paul is saying, make no mistake about it, I'm fine. I am blessed with every conceivable spirit-giving blessing that God has to give. He says, God's blessed me, and he's chosen me, he's predestined me, he's lavished his grace upon me, he sent Christ to for me, and because I am in Christ, I'm redeemed, I am forgiven. He says, God has revealed Himself and His mysterious eternal plan to me, and He's given me His Holy Spirit as a down payment for everything else that's coming in the future. And He just shouts to the praise of His glory. He praises God for all of these incredible blessings. Now, that is what this passage is about it's about praise. It's about worship. It's about holding on to the reality of who God is, what God has done, is doing, and will do in the future. And this vision of God that Paul has, if we could tap into that, it would carry us through whatever we're facing in the present. So what I want you to see right up front is that this book, Ephesians, is set in an atmosphere of worship. The book is set in an atmosphere of worship. And verses three through 14, call us to bless the God who's blessed us with every conceivable spiritual blessing in Christ. You see that? This is a call to exuberant praise for how God has blessed you in Christ, even when you find yourself in circumstances that weigh you down. The problem is, If you've been around church for very long, you probably have missed that point. You may have never thought of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 as a song of praise. You tend to read right past it. Now, why is that? Well, you know, it's because we get stuck on this business of God choosing and predestining us, right? I mean, when you hear chosen, elect, predestination, it's like bells go off and whistles go off. It's like, wait, 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 stop, 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 stop stop right there. I mean, look at it. There it's verse four. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In verse five, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. And in verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And we read those verses and we go, time out, time out, and we get stuck. Why? Well, because we're good Americans. And the highest value for a good American is freedom. Freedom. Freedom of speech, freedom to worship as we please, freedom to bear arms, freedom to choose. Most of us are like, don't mess with freedom. That's the highest American value, or at least it used to be. And so the question comes up, how can we be chosen before the foundation of the world, but then we still get to choose too? I mean, that just doesn't make sense to us. Our, our brains lock up. And this whole idea of praising God is kind of like, well, that's a nice idea. Thank you, Charlie. But let's really get down to the business of, of dissecting uh, election and predestination. I mean, that's the most important thing. Okay, well, let's just do that for a moment. Now, I'm at a severe disadvantage here because according to Luke in the book of Acts, uh, Paul spent about three years in Ephesus teaching the people the whole counsel of God. So I have no doubt that he covered this topic in detail. Problem is, I'm going to cover the topic in about three minutes uh, because I don't want to lose sight uh, of what the passage is really about. So I'm going to make two observations about election from this passage. First of all, when people talk about election and predestination, they typically think of God choosing individuals, kind of like an election. Like I vote for this person, and I don't vote for that person, follow me? And we apply that that, that kind of thinking to God. God chooses some and he doesn't choose others. And the emphasis comes out sounding very exclusive. Some are chosen, some are not, some go to heaven, some do not. Now here's why we think this way. This is the typical way we understand the storyline of the Bible. Here we have God who creates me, you and us, and sin comes along and separates us from God, but then God sends Jesus to die for us and to rise from the dead to give us new life. And those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, when they die, they go to heaven. And those who reject Jesus, when they die, they go to the other place, hell. That's the storyline that I heard some 56 years ago when I trusted Christ as my Savior, and that decision to put my faith in Christ set the entire trajectory of my life, and I am very, very thankful for that, uh, uh, that I heard that and and I believed. And I'm sure that's pretty much what most all of you believed as well, who are now Faithfully following Jesus. So this is a helpful model for understanding the gospel message. So if that, with that storyline in your mind, if you bring uh, election into the equation, this is where it fits. It fits right there with me, the individual. And so God elects me, and uh, if, if I'm elect, I go to heaven. If I'm non-elect, I don't go to heaven, right? Right. Now. Um, So for many of us, election means God chooses some out of the many to go to heaven rather than hell. The problem is that way of understanding the story of Scripture was not the way the biblical writers understood it. It certainly was not Paul's way of understanding the storyline of the Bible. Paul understood Scripture telling this story. Let me show it to you. God creates humanity, he creates a people for himself, and he blesses them. God will be, and the blessing is God. God will be their God and and, and they will be his people. But the very first of those people turn from God and go their own way and sin and death and violence and corruption fill God's good world. So God comes and he chooses one man out of the many He chooses Abraham and he predestines the family of Abraham to be one nation, the one nation through whom he will one day restore his blessings to the whole world. Tim Mackey puts it this way, God chooses one out of the many so that through the one he can restore his blessing back to the many. This is the logic of election. God chooses one out of the many so that through the one he can restore his blessing back to the many. So back to Paul's storyline. So Abraham's family grows into the nation of Israel. But Israel does not fulfill its God-given mission to be a blessing to the nations. They repeatedly fall into sin just like Adam and Eve and the human race fell into sin in the very beginning. And now, now, now there's a double problem that has to be solved. Not only is the problem with the whole human race, the whole pro, now the problem is the vehicle by which God was going to bring blessings to the whole human race. They've screwed up. Okay, so, so all through the Old Testament, what you read is, you read of a Messiah who is to come, A Messiah who will restore God's blessing both to Israel and to all the nations. And this Messiah will bring both Israel and the nations together as one as God's new humanity. You see that? And it is Messiah Jesus, the seed of Abraham, who will fulfill Israel's mission by extending God's blessing to Israel and to all people. Make sense? One more time, God blesses all of humanity. Humanity forfeits that blessing. He chose and predestined one uh, man whose family was to be the vehicle of blessing to the nations, Abraham. And Israel, because of its sin, forfeited that blessing so that the promise of blessing now gets put on one hope for Messiah in and through whom all the nations can experience God's original blessing creation blessing. And the Messiah will solve Israel's problem and the nation's problem. Now, we're still in the Old Testament. This is all Old Testament. So that now, the only way, now we get to the New Testament, so that now, the only way that Israel and the nations can experience God's original promised blessings is in and through the Messiah, Jesus. Now, let me read Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 again with that storyline in mind. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he's blessed us in the beloved. So do you see how this is not about who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? It's about how God predetermined and purposed that he would have one people, one humanity for himself and he would have that people in Christ. In Christ. So that election in Paul's storyline looks like this. And if we had the time we could unpack all this. But... These words, blessing, choosing, predestining, gracing, those are all words, if we could go back through the Old Testament, we would find those words are attributed to Abraham, and then they are attributed to Israel, God's beloved in the Old Testament, and then we come forward uh, into the New Testament, or at the end of the Old Testament, the prophets, you see blessed, chosen, beloved, predestined, attributed to the Messiah who is to come, And now we know who that Messiah is. It's in Jesus so that everyone who is in him, Israel and the nations, are restored to God's original intent for humanity. You see, it is the plan of God that was predestined, not individual people so much, so much, So All of these words, blessing, choosing, predestining, gracing, have a much richer meaning if you see them set in the whole storyline of the Bible because these words were first used of Abraham, then they're used of Israel, then they're used of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, and now ultimately they are used of Jesus, the chosen one, the elect one, in whom before the foundation of the world, God predetermined he would restore all of his blessings Uh, To humanity in one new humanity, which today is called the church. This is the mysterious, predetermined, eternal plan of God. This is God's plan for God's church revealed, which is the byline of our study in Ephesians. This is what Ephesians is all about. Not who's in and who's out, but how everybody is in when they are put into Christ by faith. So do you see how this is about inclusion, not exclusion? Let me put it this way. God chooses one, Jesus, out of the many so that through the one he can restore his blessing back to the many. That's the logic of election. God chooses one, Jesus, out of the many so that through the one he can restore his blessing back to the many. This is the mystery that Paul is going to unpack. This was... It it was known, but it was not known in the Old Testament days, but it has now become clear. What did Jesus say? I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for the many. So do you see how Paul is so caught up in this mysterious love and wisdom of God and in his plan to restore his blessing to all humanity in Christ that he literally can't help but praise the glory of the grace of God. And hear me, I'm telling you, if your understanding of this passage simply results in theological debates and arguments over who's in and who's out, rather than uncontrollable praise for the love and wisdom of God in Christ, you missed the whole point of this passage. And you see the same thing in Romans 9 and 11, but I don't have time to unpack all that today. But if you're interested in that, you can go back and listen to my message on Romans 9, 11 in the Roman series. But Ephesians chapter one, Paul is not talking as much about individual salvation as he is about Jews and Gentiles becoming one people in Christ, that being the eternal predetermined plan of God in Christ, and he's gonna unpack bringing Jews and Gentiles together in one people in chapter two. But let me show it to you just in one other way from this passage. In verses three through 12, Paul uses the pronouns we and us. You say, well, couldn't that mean we and us as as a group of individuals? It could, but it doesn't because uh, here's what happens. In, in, what messes all that up is verse 13 where he changes from we and us to you. What about that? Look at verse 12. He says, we who were the first to hope in Christ. Who is the we? Who is he talking about? Not the Ephesians. Not the Gentiles, he's talking about the Jews. The Jews were the first to hope in Christ, the first to believe in Messiah Jesus. The Jews were God's chosen people. The Jews were God's elect. And Jesus came out, came first to the house of Israel and the Jews were the first to hope in Christ. But look at this, verse 13. But now you too, you too. He's, he's talking about groups of people. You too are included. See that? In him you also having heard the gospel of salvation, having also believed. He's saying that all who believe the gospel of salvation are put into Christ, sealed with the Spirit, and if you are in Christ, you are God's elect. You see, Paul isn't trying to raise questions. He's, not, he's trying to raise hope. He, he sees God's great plan of redemption in Christ as a matter of great praise, Now, here's the thing. He doesn't tell us how God did this. He doesn't dot every theological I and cross every doctrinal T for us. He simply makes God's choosing of us to be a part of his new humanity, the church. He simply makes that a matter of praise and thanksgiving. And when you understand election as Paul did, I believe it will evoke the same response in you. That's the first observation. Second observation, this is really important, but I'm only gonna spend a few, about a minute on it today because Paul's gonna unpack this in chapters four through six. But the second point about election I wanna just seed this morning is election carries with it the idea that because we are in Christ, God has chosen us for something, to be something, to do something. Look at it in verse four, we are chosen... To live holy and blameless lives. Actually, it, 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 I, I, if I had this to do over again, I'd reword this. We are chosen by God and we are holy and blameless in Jesus. Now, yeah, we live that out. But that's, the verse says we are chosen holy and blameless. Now, and you know what blameless means? You're not blamed. You're not condemned. Isn't that good? We're, uh, and then he says in verse five, we're predestined to become Sons through Christ by adoption. Verses 11 and 12, we are predestined to the end that we would praise his glory. So it's not just that we're chosen, period, or chosen to go to heaven or hell. We're chosen for something, to be something, to become something, to do something. And Paul, again, he will flesh all that out in chapters four through six, which we'll get to in the coming weeks, so stay tuned. But this passage is not so much about predestination as it is about praise. It's not about wondering who's in and who's out. It's about the wonder of worshiping a God who is in sovereign control of all things. It's about his mysterious eternal plan that has now been revealed to us in and through Christ, the plan for his church. It's about how God is bringing Jew and Gentile together in one new humanity in the church of Jesus. And it's about how we are now a part of this great predetermined plan of God that God intends to shape every aspect of our life to the praise of his glory. Now, that'll give you some things to think about, and I'm sure it'll come up in your community group. And if you have questions, feel free to write me at j- Thompson at fellowshipgreenville.org. Now, truthfully, if you write me and you want to debate me, I'm not writing you back. because I'll just say, I might write you back and say, just listen to my sermon again Uh, because I I don't do email debates about things like this where it's just an ongoing thing that goes on and on and you're not going to change your mind and I'm not going to change my mind. So anyway, enough said about election. Let's get back to what the passage is really about. Paul's song of praise, this is a praise song with three verses. Each verse focuses on a different member of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So first, in verses one through six, Paul talks about what God has done for us in Christ in eternity past. What God has done for us, God the Father has done for us in eternity past. Paul says, God has taken the initiative. He's in sovereign control of everything. He's not, and he's personally involved in everything. He's not off on some distant star. God has been active from before time began and Paul praises God for the fact that he's blessed us with every conceivable blessing. But what about the second blessing that you get later on? No, no, we've already been blessed with every single blessing. There is no more blessing to be had. We got it all when we trusted Christ as our savior. So every conceivable blessing, what, what does he mean by that? The blessings that God promised humanity at creation, the blessings that God promised to Abraham and, and, and his descendants, The people of Israel and the blessings that have now come to you and me because we are a part of God's church; those blessings, and there are no more to be had. We got it all. So, for so so from before time began, God sovereignly chose us and predetermined that He would have a family brought together in and through Jesus, and all this was according to the kind intention of his will. And when Paul thinks about all that God the Father has done, he shouts, what? To the praise of his glory. Shout that with me. To the praise of his glory. That's a whole lot better than the first time the first service did it. But let's do it one more time. Ready? One, two, three. To the praise of his glory. Absolutely. Second, Verses seven through 12 talk about what Christ has done for us now in the present. What Christ has done for us now in the present. Because of Jesus, Paul says, we've been redeemed and forgiven. Because of Jesus, God has lavished his grace on us. In Christ, we can now see the marvelous plan of God set in motion. This plan to unite all things in heaven and earth. And I'm going to show you what that means in one of these coming weeks, this is, I'm gonna have another illustration of that. By the way, all those illustrations are in at the end of the sermon notes on the app. So all of those graphics that I put up, you can access those, and all the texts that I went through. Anyway, in Christ, we see this plan set in motion, and this plan unites everything in heaven and earth, and it unites all people into one people in Christ. In Christ, listen, in Christ is the whole ball game for Paul. It's it's the whole ball game. In Christ defines who and defines the who and what and how of election. In Christ fuels Paul's praise. In Christ gives us our core identity. And Paul uses the phrases in Christ, in him, through him, 11 times in 14 verses. In these first 14 verses. 36 times in the book of Ephesians, 164 times in all his letters. Now what I find is interesting and the reason is is because we're living out that top storyline that I said a minute ago, but what I find is interesting is that Christians today talk more about Jesus being in us. We talk about inviting Jesus into our hearts so we can go to heaven when we die. And that's true. It's true. It's true. It's true. It just doesn't go far enough. The idea of Christ being in us occurs only in five texts in Paul's letters. Again, it's true and it's important, it's an important doctrine, but without ignoring the importance of Christ being in us to our, our hope of glory, we need to understand that our being in Christ is much more significant. You see, when we talk about Christ being in us, we tend to think about Jesus being about one inch tall and he's somewhere in our heart, maybe the left or right ventricle. Maybe the atrium, I don't know. Uh, or the commons area outside. No, anyway, uh, I, sorry. Uh, it's, anyway, we just think about this little Jesus living in a valentine heart. But when we think about our being in Christ, that's much bigger. In fact, in fact, that reality literally defines who we are. It gives us our true identity. We are in Christ. It's the difference between going swimming in the ocean And swallowing a little bit of seawater. I mean, when you swallow a little bit of seawater, the water is in you. But when you jump into the waves, you're in water. You're in the vastness of the ocean. And when you're in the water, the water is the defining reality. The water is all-encompassing. Wet is the way you are when you are in water because water covers you. When you are in the ocean, you are a part of something infinitely bigger than yourself. And, and in God's plan of salvation, is a whole lot bigger than just you and me. It includes us, and the joy is, and the praises we get to be a part of what God's doing in history and in the world. That's just scratching the surface of what it means to be in Christ. But the point is, in Christ is your defining reality. It's your core identity. And when Paul thinks about that, about being in Christ because of what Jesus has done for us, he shouts. Okay, let's try one. He shouts to the praise of his glory. That's better. And finally, verses 13 and 14 talk about how the indwelling Holy Spirit guarantees our future inheritance in Christ. When Paul thinks about how through faith in Christ we've been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment for our future with God and how we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit and we're therefore secure in Christ, Christ Christ in us, we in Christ, when he sees that and he sees what the Holy Spirit has done for us and will do for us, he shouts to the praise of his glory. So do you see how praise permeates the entire passage? Th- this three stanzas song of praise permeates and dominates Paul's understanding of scripture. His praise permeates his theology. Oh, <laughs> truly, Ephesians is set in an atmosphere of worship. Now the question is, so why don't we praise God like this very often? I mean, especially when we find ourselves in a prison of problems that weigh us down. Why is praise in the midst of problems so hard for us, but not so hard for Paul? Now, I'm sure Paul struggled at times. Like when he says at the end of Philippians, I have learned to be content. He was in prison because Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, they're all letters that he wrote from prison. So he learned to be content, meaning he was in a process of learning just like you and me. So, what, so how did he finally get to the place where he was singing in prison? And I'm sure there's probably several reasons, but I, I, I want to put it like this. I just want to focus on, on, on this one. You see, the, our problem is we see things not as they are, but as we are. We see things not as they are, but as we are. Now, that's not original with me, of course. That uh, has a long history, actually, in the Jewish Talmud. Um, But it was made more popular by uh, author Stephen Covey in his best-selling book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, back in the 90s. We see things not as they are, but as we are. And to make matters worse, we're going to see this in Ephesians for sure, there's a great spiritual battle going on that's keeping us blind to the way things really are. And again, we'll learn more about that in the coming weeks. But Paul was able to passionately worship God despite his circumstances because this song of praise expressed what Paul believed was true reality. Now, how do I know that? Look back at verse three. He says, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Stop. Paul praises God because God has blessed him. How? How? How did God bless him? By giving him a problem-free life? No, he praises God because he's blessed him with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now what does that mean? Paul says, I've been blessed with every spiritual place, uh, blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What are the heavenly places? Well, the word's actually the heavenlies. What's that? Well, in the ancient world, heaven could refer to the sky, or it could refer to the place where believers go after they die. Or it could refer to the realm, listen, to the realm of spiritual reality, which was true reality, which was eternal reality. And that is what Paul immersed himself in. And that is where he focused. That is where he fixed his eyes. Do you remember him talking about that somewhere else in the New Testament? When he, you remember 2 Corinthians 4, 18, where he says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen but what is unseen since that since what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is the e- eternal he was fixing his eyes on heavenly realities eternal realities what he knew to be true about himself spirit, spiritually speaking heavenly realities on spirit given blessing on the spirit given blessings that he had received in Christ so really what we need more than then anything else is eyes to see as Paul sees. Because remember what I said at the beginning: whatever dominates your thought life is what you worship. Whatever de- dominates your thought life will determine the intensity of your worship. I think that's the reason, that's one of the reasons Jesus frequently said we need eyes to see. We need eyes to see. Like, like eyes to see what? Like when we sin when we really blow it, sometimes we have a hard time forgiving ourselves, right? And the more we focus on how we blew it, the guilt piles up and up and up and up and we don't feel worthy of worship. The problem is we don't see God as he is, but as we are. But what's true? What's really true? What's the way things really are? Well, God in Christ has redeemed you. He has forgiven you. He has declared you holy and blameless. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the truth. So why can't we forgive ourselves? Because we see things as we are, not as the way God says they are. What else? Well, we fix our eyes on circumstances, the circumstances we don't like. There's things happening we don't like. There's things that are not happening that we want to happen and we get worried and discouraged and angry. We doubt God and the more we focus on our circumstances, the more discouraged we become, more worried we become, the more angry we become. Why? Because we are focused on how we are rather than on who God is and the fact that who is God. What's he up to? He is sovereign. He is in control. Nothing is happening that is beyond his control or outside his love for us. His good plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. The problem is, too often, those are just nice words. They're not our defining reality. See, we tend to see things not as God sees them, but the way we see them. We tend to see things the way we are rather than how God says they are. But Paul, he had learned over time to focus on heavenly realities and spiritual blessings, the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. And those realities and blessings became more real to Paul than his problems. And therefore, he was able to praise God in the midst of all those problems you know, by the way, this isn't the first time Paul sang in prison, right? Because you know the story in Philippians where Paul and Silas are singing in prison. He was able to keep the main thing, the main thing. And for Paul, the main thing was the fact that he was blessed with being in Christ. And that dominated his thinking, being In Christ was his defining reality. It was his core identity. And we're gonna see that this Ephesian letter can radically alter our vision of reality if we have eyes to see. So here's the question I've been asking myself this week as I've read and reread these first 14 verses. The question I've asked myself is, do I see things the way they really are or the way that I am? Do I see things the way they really are or do I see things the way I am or how they seem to me? What about you? Do you see th- whatever prison you find yourself in, whatever has ca- you're caught up in that weighs you down do you see things the way they really are the way God says they are or as you are and if so, I let me give you a, let me give you an assignment. This next week I want to suggest to you that you read and reread Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Read and reread it. Read it in different versions. English Standard Version, New International Version, New Living Translation, the Message. Read it in a bunch of different translations, read it over and over again, and then come back to your your ESV or your NIV, and slow down and meditate on each phrase. Each phrase. Turn that into prayer. Now, if you're really up for the challenge, try memorizing it. But but most of all, personalize it. Write out the spiritual blessings that have come to you in Christ using The I pronoun, the I pronoun, because it starts with humanity, the blessings to Abraham, I mean, the the blessing to, promise to humanity, the blessing promised to Abraham, the blessings promised to Israel, the blessings that have come to us in Christ down to you. So it does get down to individual level, you understand. But write out the blessings that have come to you with the I pronoun, something that looks like this. I am in Christ. I have already been blessed in the heavenly realms. I have been chosen before the creation of the world. I have been redeemed. I have been forgiven of my sins. I am holy and blameless in his sight. I'm a child of God by adoption. I will one day see all things come together under the lordship of Christ. I have been sealed with the spirit, and I'm guaranteed an incredible inheritance in the future. To the praise of the glory of God. Yeah. So write that out for yourself. I mean, you can take a picture of it if you want to, and you can use, you can piggyback on my words, but it'd be better if you wrote your own out. But here's the deal. If this becomes more real to you than the prison of problems you find yourself in, if these heaven-sent spirit-given truth blessings permeate and dominate your thinking, you'll find yourself able to praise God no matter what your circumstance you'll learn to do it over time just like paul learned to do it to the praise of the glory of god that's you know i've I've thought about that all week long too to the praise of the glory of god am i living to the praise of the glory of god that could be a personal mission statement and certainly it could be a Church mission statement. Would you bow with me for prayer? Father God, thank you so very much for this great book of Ephesians. And as we begin our study in it, Lord, we're asking you to open our eyes to see. Give us ears to hear, hearts that trust minds with the will to live to the praise of your glory, thank you for this vision of what is really real and lasting, eternal, and give us eyes to see the way things really are and not the way we are. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.